Welcome to the Self-Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at Self-Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you are encouraged by this week's message. Good morning, friends. Great to be with you on this new year. 2021, you made it. Way to go, you. You got through and you did it and great job. I was just intrigued on New Year's Eve just to listen. I went and sort of listened to some of the different comments that were made by different um, people on TV as the New Year clicked over. Uh, And one reporter went simply with this, thank goodness that's over. I was like, wow, I mean, way to go negative. And, And then on the BBC, they did a big fireworks display right after midnight. And the first words were, as they started their big display and the voiceover were, in 2020, a new virus hit the world. I was like, is there anybody that that is news to at this point? Surely we all need, we know we're good. Um, and, and what we wanted to do in this new year was this. We wanted to, to think about the idea that, that we can look back at 2020. That's maybe for some of us a celebration. We get to look back and say, hey, that year is gone. We're in a new year. But also, whenever you go through an experience, one of the best things you can do is, is to learn from it. So so our goal was this, how can we learn from 2020? Now, there's something about us as human beings, I think, that we like rhythm. We're just made that way. So think about this. If you woke up or you never got to wake up on a new day, how would that feel? Every failure, every time you made a mistake, every error, that would always be today. There's something fresh about waking up on a new day and being like, ah, I can, I can start over. There's something about a new week, about the weekend, about having some time off and starting again. We'll get to that in week four when we talk a little bit about rest, but there's something about rhythms that we like. So I think it's normal that we think New Year's are a fresh start, but there's a danger there as well, maybe. This was something that Teresa, our comms director, sent me uh, that a friend of hers had posted. His post from 2000, December 2019, 220 is going to be a great year. Now, maybe it would have been. Maybe 2021 will be a fantastic year all around. But if our reliance is just on a calendar ticking over for things to get refreshed, for things to be new, then eventually we're going to find ourselves back in the same place that we might have found ourselves at the end of last year just waiting for another fresh start. If we learn from it, if we put some principles in place, then actually we may get to come out of 2020 into 2021 feeling stronger, feeling like we are better equipped to to do what South Fellowship wants to do, which is to walk in the way of Jesus, with the heart of Jesus. So over the next few weeks, we're going to follow this guy called Paul, a New Testament writer, and we're going to read through his letter to the Philippians. Now, we can't go verse by verse. That would take us a, a lot of time, a lot more than the four weeks that we have. But one of my encouragements to you would be this. Take that one book in the Bible and read it. Just take half an hour, sit down. You can read it in half an hour. Read it cover to cover. When we land on the high points uh, as we go through it week by week here, take some time to read the bits in between, the bits that we didn't get a chance to cover. This is a chance for you to to self-feed, to grow by yourself, which is is a really cool thing. So let's get into it. This is Paul writing to a church in a place called Philippi. I marked it with a P. I realized that may have been a mistake because that could also mean Paul. Paul is not where the P is. Philippi, the town, is where Paul is. And Paul, Paul's stuck in prison. 
Paul's in maybe one of these three places. There's all sorts of like scholarly reasons why he could be over on the, the sort of the far side of your map over here is a town called Caesarea. Over in the middle is a town called Ephesus. And, and far over there in Italy is a map, uh, is Rome. Now, in case you needed a hint, this is the Mediterranean, if you're unaware, just filling you in geographically. But, but Paul is somewhere here. And there's a reason we picked Philippians. Because you might say that Philippians is a lockdown epistle. Philippians is a virus time epistle. Philippians is a letter that you might write in a situation just like lots of us find ourselves in right now. This is Paul's situation. See if it sounds familiar. Paul is locked up in house arrest. He's not allowed to go out anywhere right now. He's separated from those that he loves. He doesn't get to see them. This is a church that he started. He went on this big expedition. He started this church in this town called Philippi, and it's now been years since he got to see them. And he's also living through some politically volatile times. The, the year is probably somewhere about 62 AD. Jesus died and rose again about 30 years before. Christianity went from this tiny little sect in one town to spreading everywhere. And the guy that's running everything is this guy called Nero. Some people love him. Some people hate him. He's very divisive. Does that sound familiar? I'm not saying that, that President Trump is like Nero or not. I'm just saying that people love him. People hate him. He's in that time of like... What's going to happen? Now, I think one of the things we could learn there, learn there on a little side note is this. I don't think Paul was sat around asking if Nero was God's man for the Roman Empire. I'm not sure that was the biggest thing in his mind. His fo focus, his sole focus was on how can I share who Jesus is and what he did. And then this church in Philippi, this church is facing uncertain finances. They do not know where their next paycheck is coming from. Does that sound somewhat like someone you might know? Maybe that's you right now. This is a little note that Paul writes to another church about this little town in Philippi. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. This is a church that, that didn't know where the money was coming from and yet still found themselves to be generous. This church is experiencing persecution. This sect, this group of people, this new religion, Christianity, is no longer popular. It was, to start with, just a little thing that was a side note, and now it's big and significant, and people hate it. People are not happy that this thing is spreading everywhere. Nero, the guy we just looked at, will, in a few years, start a huge campaign against Christianity. And this group of people is trying to learn the way of Jesus. Even though the guy that started the church, Paul, is now many miles away and they haven't seen him for years. They're a group of people wrestling with what it is to follow Jesus in this world that they're presented with. Philippians is a letter that could be written to our times. Could be written to our times. And so if you want a broad summary of Philippians, this is what I would say. If you wanted to get it in a sentence, obviously there's more to it than this. The message of Philippians is this. Because of God's good grace, we can choose joy at all times. Because of God's good grace, we can choose joy at all times. So, 
Some of you all want to know where we're going. Some of you all want to do some reading during the week. If you want to grab your phone, you can take a picture. If you want to write down these passages, you can go and look at them as well. We're going to cover most of them today, but it will give you a chance to do your thing. I'll leave it up there for the, at least the next five seconds. <laughs> so act quickly. While they're doing that, I can just note that we talked about leaving the layout as it is. Loads of you said that you loved it for this season right now. I said dangerously this, let's try and make it feel like a comedy club, and then backtracked quickly, because there's two implications there. One is that I'll be funny, which is not probable, and two, what happens at a comedy club? You're told things that aren't true, um, and you're supposed to laugh at them, which is not what we do here, just on a side note. And your time, time's over. So let's jump in. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. We're going to use these three verses as an anchor for the next four weeks. If you like to memorize parts of the Bible, this is a great part for you to memorize over the next few weeks. It just has so much in it, and we're going to go through this bit by bit, and we're going to jump into some of the other chapters in this really short letter to this church in Philippi. The start is just the start of a normal letter. This is just how people wrote letters in the first century AD. I just send you my greetings. It could be a letter from a mother to a, to a son. It could be almost any kind of letter. So Paul starts off just in the traditional way, and then he lands in this first line. I thank my God every time I remember you. Paul's first step is gratitude. Philippians begins with gratitude, and think about that in the context of what they're going through. We just said Paul's in jail. Paul's been in jail for a while, and Paul may never get out of jail. This writer, is his, his court case is in the balance. He could be executed at any moment. He doesn't know what his future holds. This church in Philippi is struggling. They are doing some great things, and yet at the same time, their future is uncertain as well. And yet Paul in the midst of this, Philippians in the midst of this, begins with gratitude. This incredible word, this Greek word, eucharisto, which is literally two words put together. The Greek word for good and the Greek word for grace. When Paul talks about thanks, when he talks about gratitude, he's talking about this idea of good grace. And now you guys, I'm sure every one of you can find a source of gratitude, something that you have experienced at some time in your life. Maybe you've had one of those feelings where you're like, I am so grateful in this moment right now. This is my family back in England. We went to visit them. We tried one of these shots called Magic Pano. So my actual, my, my second daughter Gigi has kind of disappeared from the shot. Uh, it didn't really work very well, but these are all the people that I love most in the world. And I have this moment, this feeling of gratitude. A couple of years ago, I distinctly remember sitting in my parents' garden and just having one of those moments. Everyone I love in the world right now most deeply, is safe. They're here present with me. This is joy. Every one of you can think of a moment, I'm sure, where you have felt that deep sense of gratitude. Life is good. 
Maybe you've seen it. Maybe you've seen it on others. A few years ago, I was taking a trip out to Haiti. I was spending some time with the, the representative in the country, and we hadn't got to meet this group of, of kids that we were going to work with yet. But I said to Francois, I said, Francois, I have a plan. Um, how would it be if we took them to the beach? Haiti's like this Caribbean paradise in some ways, and yet so much of it is broken. And I, I just said, I'd love us to take him to the beach. And he looked at me and he said, it will be really expensive. I said, well, we'll figure out the money part, but what would it mean? Would it be worthwhile? I don't want to do something that's not worthwhile. And Francois looked at me with tears in his eyes and he said, it will be everything. These kids have never been more than sort of 10 minutes outside of their, the, the, the street that they live in. They live on a Caribbean island and they've never seen the ocean. It would mean everything. So I said, well, we'll make it happen. We'll figure out the money. And so we, we got these buses and we grabbed, there was 100 of us, about 60 Haitian kids, about 20 American kids, and then a load of adults and stuff like that. And we, we, we stuck them on this bus and we drove them two hours to this beautiful ocean side, uh, beautiful ocean beach. And I had this plan. There's about 60 of them, they can't swim. So I'm like, we're gonna send them into the water about 20 at a time, uh, and we'll keep the other 40 on the side. So we got there and we split them into groups and I sent the 20 into the water and I was sick. I had shingles. I was miserable in some ways, but I'm there sort of helping things happen and I send these 20 kids into the water. And then I watched as this group of American teenagers is left to sort of police this 40 that are left on the beach looking at the water. And it's like that moment, if you've ever seen a dam start to burst, you see like a little bit of water starting to appear and then more and then more and more. And slowly one Haitian kid finds a way through a crack and then another. And, and as you turn to stop those two, three more run to the other side of you. And in the end, it was just this joyful mess of screams and giggles and laughter and joy of kids enjoying life. Kids born into adversity, born into situations that aren't great. Many of these kids, they lost their parents during the earthquake in 2010, and the pastor of the church, he, he just, they just turned up on his doorstep, and he just went about figuring out, well, what do we do now? And he just made plans, and he kept working, and he kept feeding them, and he kept clothing them, and he kept schooling them. And he just made it happen. And one of my joys in this moment was to watch him just floating away in the deep water as though he didn't have a care in the world, this guy who carries so many burdens. And then the moment where these kids ran up to me, and I've just met them for the first time, and just their, their eyes and just the idea of, ah, oh, I'm so thankful. They were so grateful. They were experiencing this incredible gratitude. Maybe you felt it. Maybe you've seen it. And even in 2020, part of our dream for this series was we wanted to reclaim 2020 because it was tough and there were things that were hard. But I would guess so many of you experienced things in 2020 that were a wonderful joy to you. I moved to a different state. I became part of South and this community here. It was a joy to me. Many of you have experienced what it is to have kids, to, to give birth to children. Many of you have experienced marriages. You've experienced new jobs. You've bought new houses. You've done new things. There have been things in 2020 that have been good. And to say that it was just bad doesn't do justice to the great gifts that this year, that this last year gave to us. There is so much good. We can redeem this year because good gifts were given in 2020. 
So why is practicing gratitude so important? Because I would suggest it is. Now, you could just go for the biblical answer. The, the Paul answer is that, that actually the Bible just tells us to do it. This is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 18. Rejoice always, pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. This is Psalm 107. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. But that answer may not work for every single one of you. What we can say is this, psychologically, gratitude actually is just important, whether you're following Jesus or not. There's this idea about how our brains work. Bad experiences, bad things, they work like Velcro. They stick really quickly to your cognitive experience. You have a bad experience and it just stays. You don't have to do any work. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to contemplate it. It just stays with you. Think about watching a movie with a bad scene, something in a horror movie maybe that you watched as a kid, and glue. It's just there, and you might even be able to picture it now. It just stays all these years. Good experiences, they don't work like that. Good experiences are like the other thing. That's one of those nasty, cheap Teflon pans. If you still have them in your uh, kitchen, uh, I apologize. Get rid of them. Um, that's my one piece of advice for today, other than the biblical stuff. Uh, but there's this sense that good ideas, they don't stick. You actually have to work. You have to decide to process them. And there's this idea that 15 seconds is the minimum amount of time that you need to process something for that good experience to stick. Gratitude is important as a practice because it's the only thing that gives us the value from our good experiences. The negative ones will stay anyway. The good ones require work. Good gratitude changes my attitude. When I'm low, when things aren't going as I want them to, there's something about this practice of gratitude that makes, it changes me. It's transformative. Good Gratitude changes my attitude. Now, I would say this. For, so far, this works whether you're following Jesus or not. I would say whether you've chosen to follow Jesus, whether you're at home, whether you're here, if you've decided that that isn't for you right now, gratitude is still an important practice. It will still benefit you. It's still really good self-care. There's a ton of value in it. But I would suggest that the, the question of who gets our gratitude is the next question I would push to you. We're going to read this story about Jesus' encounter with a group of guys that are sick. Now, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, 10 men who had leprosy, this disease where your body would literally almost disappear, disintegrate in front of you, they stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan, someone who wasn't supposed to acknowledge the God of Israel, someone who was supposed to try and keep a distance from anyone of a Jewish background, which Jesus certainly was. Jesus asked, were not all 10 cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, Rise and go, your faith has made you well. There's this moment where every single one of them receive a gift, they are healed, and nine of them just go off and they just do their thing. They don't show any particular gratitude, they're excited, they go and they celebrate, and then one comes back. One comes back and recognizes that the gift 
was given by somebody. Do the other nine lose their healing? No. But does this one get something that they don't? Perhaps Jesus chooses to use a different word here. He uses the word well, not the word healed. There's maybe something that this guy gets out of his experience that the others don't. But certainly he gets this incredible privilege of recognizing that the gift was given by somebody. I wonder about our tendency sometimes. I wonder if there's a tendency to experience great things and sometimes to miss the fact that they were given as gifts. I wonder if we have a tendency to focus on the gift itself and not the person behind it. And, and in this ways, in some ways, I think, I think it's like a bubble maker. Um, and so I didn't just bring this toy just for... Fun. Well, kind of, I guess I did. Um, I'm not just bringing toys regularly to services anymore. So I'm going to try and turn this upside down without spilling it everywhere. So this will be a project. Okay, there we go. And this thing is pretty noisy, I'm going to warn you. But think about how a bubble maker operates. This one doesn't, it's broken. Ah, oh, success. So give him a second in amongst his noise to, to do his work for us. There he goes. Gonna move my iPad because it doesn't like bubbles. So there's something about them that they're captivating, right? For kids, you see bubbles, you wanna come pop them, you wanna come play with them, I don't blame you. I'm making a ton of mess here. Sorry, Aaron, your beautiful stage. There's something about bubbles that are so just, ah, they just, they, they just grab you. They are like gifts. And yet they came from somewhere. And it takes an adult and their mental capacity, I think, to appreciate the fact that it's the bubble maker that, that produces these bubbles. Now, it sounds really weird to say that God is like a bubble maker, but in some ways, for the purpose of the illustration, this is true. Think about the wonderful things that you have. We just talked for a while about gratitude. We talked about things you've experienced in 2020, things you've experienced throughout your life. Maybe you've had moments sitting with the people you love, and it's been wonderful. Maybe you've had moments where it felt like you were floating on a Haitian ocean, and you didn't have a care in the world. And you had those sense of, I am so deeply grateful. Maybe you've looked into the eyes of someone you loved, all of those experiences, they are all wonderful. And yet they are all bubbles. At some point, they will pop. At some point, they will go. At some point, they will be over. Some of you have experienced that this year as well. You've experienced loss. You've experienced grief. My bubbles, Laura, Elena, Gigi, Jude, they're temporary as much as I would love to keep them safe forever, as much as I would love to protect them, I can't, at least not ultimately. They're all things that are ultimately are made to, to disappear, at least from my experience, or I'm made to disappear from theirs. And yet the thing that gives the gift, the bubble maker, is permanent. And it constantly gives new bubbles. Maybe you won't appreciate them in quite the way that you appreciate the other ones, but it constantly gives new ones. There's something wonderful about how gratitude changes us. When we move not from not, not just being grateful, but we move to this idea that the gift was given by someone who loves us deeply, who loves to give good gifts, who values us, and loves to see the joy in us when we receive them. So many of us find that, I think. We fall in love, and without someone to thank for that person, 
it loses some of its value. We receive something, a child maybe as a gift, something, some joyful experience, and there's something transformative about being able to move from just thanking for the gift or being thankful for the gift to being able to say, this gift was given by someone who loves me. And I am so thankful for the gift and its giver. There's something about this God-centered gratitude that I would call it, this move from just gratitude to centering it around the fact that God was the giver of the gift that I think is powerful. And so the question is just how powerful? Well, let's look at Philippians chapter one a little further down. This is what Paul will say. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace garden to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in my chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is, that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Paul, in this incredibly difficult situation, in a situation where he is in chains and other people are preaching about Jesus, teaching about Jesus, showing the way of Jesus, and it's making his life worse, he can still say that's a good thing. His God-centered gratitude can bring him through even this incredible trial. And yes, I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Christ, Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. What does he mean by deliverance? Well, we read a little further. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by my life or by my death. For to me, to live is Christ to, go, to die is gain. Paul, his life is in the balance. This court case, it could go one way or another. He's probably been charged with disturbing the peace or something like that. If he's found guilty, he'll probably be killed. If he's found innocent, he may be set free, but maybe not. Paul can say whether I die or whether I live. I can rejoice. That's what this God-centered gratitude drives him to. Whatever happens, this is his advice to them. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Remember I said, this is a group of people that are experiencing persecution. Paul's message to them is, I can, I can thrive even when life is hard. You as a church, you can thrive even when life is hard, but that thriving, it begins with gratitude. Good gratitude changes my attitude. And he, at this last point in this chapter one, he, he celebrates about what is happening to them. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Paul has this landing spot of, we're in this together. And you, you Philippi, you group of people that are feeling persecuted, feeling like the world is against you, this is good. You are so privileged. In, in the midst of these trials, Paul can find reasons to be thankful. 
and his thankfulness is what will carry him through. Paul believed that God-centered gratitude can navigate us through the most difficult of situations. And why, why does it navigate us through? Because it takes our eyes off, off us. Our tendency is to keep our eyes on us and God-centered gratitude, it doesn't put them on us, it doesn't put them on the gift, but it keeps it firmly where it needs them, firmly where they need to be, on the giver of the gift. God-centered gratitude will carry him through because it puts his eyes firmly on Jesus, which is where they need to be. This idea of this word Eucharisto, this word that I said was a mixture of good and grace, what it means at its heart is something like this. It's acknowledging that God's grace works well. We're going to move to a time in our service where we're going to celebrate communion together. In some places, you may have grown up in a tradition that called it Mass. You may have grown up in a tradition that called it the Lord's Supper. But in many places, it is called that word. It is called Eucharist. It's the same heartbeat. It's a celebration of good grace. God-centered gratitude is an acknowledgement that God's grace works well, and that's what we get to do in communion. If you're at home and you'd like to take communion with us in a few moments, you can go grab some elements. We're going to give you a couple of minutes to do that. And in a second, I'm going to invite Aaron and the team, uh, just Aaron, to come back up on stage. But let's read how Jesus processes gratitude. This is his moment of sitting with his earliest followers and doing communion with them. While they were reading, Jesus took bread, spoke a blessing, and broke it, and gave it to the disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus, at his lowest point, at his worst hour, can sit with his group of friends and know that it's for the last time on earth. This is the last time they will gather. This is the last time they will share a meal together. And he'll hand them this bread that he says resembles his body broken on a, a cross. He'll hand them a cup that he says that this is my blood poured out for you. And in the midst of all of that, he can give thanks he can give Eucharisto. He can say good grace. He can acknowledge that God's grace works well. At his lowest point, at his worst hour, Jesus can look and say, this thing that's about to happen to me is good because of what it will do for you and what it will do for me. His death is the worst thing. And it's the worst thing because it happened to the best person. It happened to the only person to live a sinless life, the only person to live on this earth and, and live sinlessly. And he did that because he was both God and man. And, and he gave that life for you and for me. So you and I could say this. The, the last thing is not really the last thing. Death is not the last thing. It's just the thing before the last thing. Jesus came and, and could celebrate good grace because he knew what it meant for you and I. It's one thing to be grateful for the great gifts we experience. It's another thing to be grateful for the God who gives good gifts. But it's still another thing to recognize that the greatest gift of all was given by Jesus, by God himself, who came and could say good grace over the worst thing because it led to the best thing. 
If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. You can give online at southfellowship.org/give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks for listening, South Family. Have a great rest of your day.